Uh, we are in a series that we're calling Tent Poles, and this series is totally focused on what are our core beliefs as a church. Because here's the thing, the world is full of opinions about a lot of things, and we recognize that we don't all agree on the same stuff even within this community. We vote differently, we think differently, we have different ways we want to spend our money, and yet we get to gather together under the same roof and call ourselves family... And so at the end of the day, we want to agree in the essentials. We want to be in unity and agree in the non-essentials. We want to have liberty to be different and that's okay. And even celebrate our differences because we like iron sharpening iron or, or the best analogy lately that I, I, I've been using is we are like rock tumblers. All of us come in here with rough edges and, and chips and, and jagged edges. And as we together begin to do life, we bounce off one another. We actually begin to polish one another up. And just that life-on-life friction is actually a benefit. And so being different is actually a strength. In the same way that my biceps and my triceps do different things and are built differently. And that's a really important thing. Because if all I had was biceps, I'd walk around looking like a T-Rex constantly and my arms would not work the way they were designed to work. So in, in the essentials, unity, and the non-essentials, liberty, and in everything, whether in agreement or in disagreement, we want to love one another. We want, to, we want to lead with charity and kindness and grace because the world will know that we are followers of Jesus Christ by the way that we love one another. Last week, if you weren't here, last week we talked about the human predicament. Because as we've been in, in this conversation of our core beliefs or our tent poles, last week we looked at you and I. Who are we? How has God uniquely made us and what did he make us for? And what we found is that you and I were created in God's image to be a reflection of his heart that we, as we are following him, would fill the earth with his, with his image so that when people look at us, they would actually learn more about him. But as we saw last week, that's not really how it always works. God bless you. Because sin entered in. And I was wearing this shirt last week. And many of you thought that I, I had just dressed down. But in fact, it was so that I could eat on stage. And, and, and this is what sin does to us. Right? We were created to reflect the image of God, to be holy as he is holy. But the reality is, as we give in to the things that are, we are naturally drawn towards, we have become tarnished image bearers. And the funny thing is, even though God has made us to be a reflection of him, we are naturally drawn towards the very things that ultimately hurt us and send us into hiding. I see this play out in my own home constantly. Just this morning, here was a conversation. Dad, can we have pancakes with ice cream? <laughs> no. Why not? Because ice cream's not good for you. Yeah, but it tastes good. Yes, it does, but the answer is still no. Well, how about whipped cream? No. Or, or, Dad, can we watch a horror movie? No. But, but why? That's not fair. All of my friends get to do it. Yeah, but I'm not your friend's parents. And you don't, you, you, re, you don't realize that you don't want to fill your mind with those images. Even your mother and I, who are old enough to watch rated R movies, we can watch them. We choose not to watch them because we don't want to fill our minds with those images. Oh, that's not fair. Well, maybe it's not fair, but it's loving. And quite honestly, I'd rather be loving than fair, right? These are conversations that regularly happen, and we laugh about that. But, 
But we are drawn to the very same things that ultimately hurt us. We are drawn like moths to a flame to the kind of stuff that not only hurts us, but sends us into hiding. And we saw that with most ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve. God created them to bear his image, to be his partners in both representing him, in caring for the earth, as well as to move the world forward, to make it a more Edenic place, to make it more, that, that the whole world would be like the Garden of Eden. And yet when the serpent enters in and begins to sow seeds of doubt, it begins to undermine both their perception of God that he's holding out on Adam and Eve and to sow questions of, of doubt into themselves. Don't you realize God has made you deficient? And then he points to the fruit that has been declared to be off limits. And he says that fruit is actually what can give you what God has withheld. And they ate. And God's image bearers were tarnished. And this sent our most ancient ancestors into hiding. First, they grabbed fig leaves to cover up, to pretend, to, 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 to create a facade that presents to the world something that is not true because they don't want to be seen for, for their imperfections. Secondly, it sent them into hiding from God. So when he shows up, he finds his image bearers Hiding in the shadows, afraid of him. And when he calls them out, what have you done? Their response isn't, okay, we did it. No, their response is to point the finger and cast blame. Adam says, don't look at me, God. It's that woman you made. She's the one who made me do it. You, you two together kind of share the blame. It's not my fault. Eve, don't look at me, God. It's that serpent you made. He made me do it. He tricked me. Right? You and I were created to reflect the heart of God. We, we still do this. We still are drawn to the things that hurt us. And then in the midst of sin and the shame that comes with it, when we begin to recognize, if anybody knew, God bless you, Kayla, if anybody knew what I'm actually dealing with, if anybody knew how much I have fallen short of what everybody else expects because everybody has it together. I'm the only one who doesn't. And if anybody knew what I carried in with me this morning, they'd be disgusted. And so we hide our true feelings and our true selves under layers of fig leaves or, or, or masks or happy faces, right? We come in and we are, our lives are breaking down. We feel at the end of ourselves, we're exhausted, we're frustrated, we're angry and we show up to church. We've just had a massive blow up with our sweetie. Or we've been yelling at our kids all morning. We show up to church and someone's like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, we're great. How are you? And we put on the smile that absolutely is, is, you know, skin deep. And we don't invite anybody in because the truth is, in our minds, they don't really want to know. And if they did know, they'd be disgusted. Welcome to the human predicament. And we see this play out all the way through the Bible. God created us to reflect his image, to fill the world with his image. But in our sin and shame, we end up reflecting our own brokenness more. We, we reflect things like greed and selfishness and anger and strife. Chapter 3, the fall happens in the very next chapter of Scripture. You have the first murder. Cain. And his brother Abel, Cain, becomes jealous of his brother because God looks with, with more favor on his sacrifice. Cain, in his anger, murders his brother. A couple chapters later, 
You have the people of God that were created to fill the earth with God's image. And what do they do? Instead of filling the world with God's image so that he would be glorified and the world becomes a more delightful, Edenic place, they gather together and begin to build a tower, the Tower of Babel, in their own name to make their names great. They've lost sight of the purpose for which they were created, namely to make God's name great, and instead they're looking to make their names great. And they're not filling the earth at all. They're gathering together. Fast forward a little bit longer. God says, okay, all of humanity is not working out in, in reflecting my image. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and carve out and create a people that will do this better. We'll call them Israel. And yet Israel, who were created to, and God blessed them as his people in order to be a blessing, the people of Israel started looking at themselves and saying, this blessing is for us. God picked us because we're better than the rest of the world, and we don't want to have anything to do with them. And they weren't a reflection of God's heart. They were a reflection of rejection, and they were a reflection of, of hoarding, like Schmeagel over on the side saying, this is my precious. We're not going to share God with anybody else. He's ours. Or even King David, Right? A man after God's own heart, the best king that Israel could ever want, the one that God chose because he was a man after his own heart. When he sees a beautiful woman bathing, he takes her to be his wife, even though she already has a husband. In fact, she's already married to one of David's friends. And then he tries to cover it up because he doesn't want anybody to know about it. And when that doesn't work, he has his friend killed in battle so he can just kind of make the mess go away. As you read the Bible, it's not full of perfect people who are following God perfectly and reflecting his heart perfectly. The Bible is full of imperfect people who are reflecting his heart imperfectly. When you look at the people of the Bible, don't don't go there expecting that you're going to see holiness. Go there expecting to see this. And that's why about 2,000 years ago, God said, okay. It hasn't worked with Adam and Eve. It hasn't worked with their descendants. It hasn't worked with the people of Israel. I'm going to do this myself. And he sent Jesus, his son, to come to earth to do for us what we couldn't do ourselves. One, Jesus came to be a perfect reflection of the heart of the Father. And two, he came to redeem God's image bearers, you and me. We're going to talk about that today. And we're going to go to a place that you might not often think that we would go to. You might think that we go to John 1 or John 3.16. Very important passages. Many of you have memorized John 3.16. Instead, we're actually going to go to Colossians chapter 1. The very same chapter that I just read that prayer of blessing over our, our uh, junior hires. Right out of that blessing that I just prayed. In Colossians chapter 1. And by the way, if you're looking for where Colossians is, it's towards the right of your Bible. It's in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the Gospels. I guess this is your right, so we'll go this way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have the book of Acts. In September, we're going to start studying through the book of Acts. So look forward to that because there's a lot of handles it gives us to talk about a whole lot of really important things. Then you have Romans, First and Second Corinthians. And then you get into... Uh, what is it? Um... General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how I always remember it, right? General Electric Power Company. So we're going to Colossians, which is the fourth of those, those books, those letters that are written to churches, home gatherings, where, where the, the followers of Jesus Christ are never, they would never have gathered in ornate buildings like this. They were gathering in people's homes. 
And they were worshiping around the dining room table. And Paul sends this letter to them. And they're a fledgling church just figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus in a city that, quite honestly, does not celebrate Jesus' name. Doesn't even know him. And they're a small community like the seed that will one day grow into a thriving community of Christ followers. But they're just beginning. And after Paul praying this prayer that I've just prayed over our junior hires, that the the power of the Holy Spirit would move in them so that they would know who they are and they would know what they are called to do and that they would stand with firmness in God's love. Right on the heels of that, Paul begins to explain who Jesus is to them. And this is one of the most crystallized, meaty declarations of who Jesus is found anywhere in Scripture. And we're going to read it, and it's going to feel like drinking from a theological fire hose. So just stick with me for a second. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. In other words, every sort of power structure was created by Jesus. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, his church. Remember, the church is never a building. The church is the people. We are the church. He is the head of us. And he is the firstborn from amongst the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if, and you remember, he's writing into a group of people who are being inundated with other ideas of how you reach God. And he says, if you guys can stick with this, if you don't give up on the faith established and firm and are not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. In other words, if you don't take hold of Jesus, he's not going to let go of you. And by the way, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the good news. That's all that gospel means. It's good news. Now let's unpack this because there was a lot there. And again, that's, that's a, that's like drinking from a theological fire hose. So there's four things in particular I want us to, to recognize as we read through this. Four things that Paul identifies about who Jesus is. Number one, Jesus is the image bearer of God. Adam and Eve and all of humanity that came after them were created to bear God's image, to fill the earth with who God really is. But we are tarnished image bearers. And this is about the best we can do. When people look at us, they don't see who God is. They see our imperfections. They see our sins. They see our greed, our lust, our arrogance, our pride, our our selfishness. We don't perfectly reflect his heart no matter how hard we try. And so God sent Jesus to once and for all reflect his heart perfectly. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God cares about? Look at what Jesus cared about. 
I love in the, in the beginning of the book of John, John says that no one has ever seen God the Father, but Jesus has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus. If you look at Jesus, then you know the Father. And Jesus himself, a couple of chapters later, said this about himself. Anyone who has seen me has already seen the Father. Now, Jesus is not saying he is the Father. What he is saying is, I am a reflection of God's heart. You want to know about what God cares about? Look at me, because I have come to do what he wanted. So the first thing we learn about Jesus from Paul's declaration that is that he is the image bearer of God. We were created to do this. Jesus is the only one who did it perfectly. Make sense? It's not the only thing though that he declares. The second thing, and by the way, we'll look at the second half of verse 15 in a second. So let's hold off on that one for just a second. Go to verse 16. The second thing we learn about Jesus is that he is the creator and sustainer of everything. Verse 16. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Not only did he create it, but he's holding it together even today. How do we have breath in our lungs? Because Jesus is holding it together. How do our bodies not fall apart? Because Jesus is holding it together. How come the earth doesn't spin off its axis? Because Jesus is holding it together. Now, wait a minute. I thought God made everything. How on earth can you claim? Do we just say that everything God did, Jesus did? So, you know, just kind of heap everything on Jesus. Is that all we're saying here? No. God did create everything. But do you remember how God did it? Go back to Genesis 1. We looked at it last week. How did God create everything? What did he do? He spoke it into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be land, and land appeared. Let there be birds in the sky, and fish in the sea, and animals along the ground, and it was so. God spoke things into existence. Well, throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is this theme that keeps coming up about a a creative power that is with God, that actually emanates from God... That created everything. In the Old Testament, it's, it's Sophia. It's wisdom. In the New Testament, it's the Logos, which is a Greek word, which we translate word. Okay? And this idea of the Logos, or the word of God, is ultimately what created everything. And here's the thing. In John chapter 1, John identifies the word of the Logos of God as Jesus. All the way back in the beginning of creation. If you want, you can turn to John chapter 1 or we can just throw it up here on the board. Let's throw it up on the board. In the beginning, this is the very first verse of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word of the Logos. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words... Everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that, even ourselves, all of us and all of creation was made in and through this word. And John will go on a little bit later to say that this word took on flesh and walked amongst us and we know him as Jesus Christ. That's what the point of all of the gospel of John is about, is to help people identify that this creative power that emanates out of God 
is literally a part of him um, that, that is of the same DNA, is the same essence of God. And that's why he can say that he's not only with God, but he is God because he was taken out of God. And so when we talk about our God being one, we still identify him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is really confusing. How does three become one? That's something that's difficult for a lot of people who are a lot older than many of you, young, uh, you youngsters in here. And I apologize, that's a, a patronizing term. And many of you um, kids who have less life experience than us, then they've grappled with it along. That's even more patronizing. I am just digging a hole. So many of you guys right here would go, wait, wait a minute, how does three become one? And the reality is it's because they are of the same essence. God has brought Jesus out of himself, so he is in essence God. And it was through that power of God's word, this creative force that took on flesh a couple thousand years ago, was born as a baby and walked amongst us. But before that, he was there in creation, speaking the world into existence. And he continues to hold it together, and that is Jesus. So here's what we know. Jesus is both the image bearer of God, the perfect reflection of him. And he is also the creator and sustainer of everything. Which brings us to the third point that Paul is making. And that is that Jesus is the rightful Lord over everything. Let's go back to verse 15 for a second. Because there's this really interesting term that Paul uses twice in this section. In verse 15, he uses it the first time. And then in verse 18, he uses it the second time. And that, that term is firstborn. He says in verse 15 that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. And then a little bit later in verse 18, he says, He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from amongst the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, when you read that term firstborn, if you're like me, you automatically think, well, wait a minute, doesn't this fly in the face of what you just said, Eric, that Jesus wasn't created if he was born, how could he not be created? That's what firstborn means, right? But keep in mind that Jesus is a part of God, that he is of the same essence. He was taken out of God. And so even that, and that's why we use that term only begotten son in John three sixteen. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten or one and only son. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is not like everybody else who is created. Jesus was taken out of God and that's why Early on, very early in the Christian history, um, as, as people started coming in and saying, hey, Jesus wasn't actually God. He was, he was just a good person that God brought his Holy Spirit on. And, and, and so he was created just like one of us. And the early church had to grapple with this. And they began to write creeds or declarations of truth that they knew to be true. And this is really early on in Christian history. And one of the most well-known and well-respected creeds is the Nicene Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, when they talk about Jesus, they talk, they point directly to the fact that he was brought out of God as opposed to being created. And so this is what the Nicene Creed says. That Jesus was begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So even the earliest in Christian history, they were saying, no, Jesus was not created. He was brought out of, he was begotten from God. That is what makes him unique, is that he can be called God himself. And so if Paul is not insinuating that Jesus is the firstborn, meaning the first created thing, then what is he suggesting about Jesus and why does he use that term twice? 
Because what Paul is going after is not when Jesus was made. What he's going after is Jesus' supremacy, his rightful ownership over everything. In the first century, who stands to inherit a family's estate? The firstborn. The firstborn child would inherit everything. The secondborn, just lucky to grow up in the family. My lips are getting dry. No, couldn't make it more messy than it already was. So the firstborn is the one that inherits everything. And Paul is saying Jesus is not only the rightful image bearer, he's not only the creator and sustainer, but he is the one who stands to inherit everything. It wasn't just created by him, it was created for him. Furthermore, Jesus is the first one that God resurrected from the dead and gave a resurrection body to. And so he is rightfully known as the firstborn from the dead. And this is, look at verse 18 for a second. This is the reason why he points that out in verse 18. He is the firstborn of the dead, um, from amongst the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So that in everything he might be recognized as the rightful owner of all of creation. That in everything he might be understood to be king of kings and lord of lords. Is this making sense? There's a lot. I know that this is kind of heady stuff. Well, let's just review what we've learned. Jesus is the image bearer of God. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. And he is the rightful ruler over everything. But what about you and me? Thank you, Randy. I feel loved. That was for me, right? Okay. You want to bring that to Heather? appreciate that. What about you and me? Because remember, God created you and me to bear God's image, to represent him and fill the earth with him. Did Jesus, when we messed up, when we became tarnished and imperfect, did Jesus come to, to replace us? The, the overwhelming message of the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, is a resounding no. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come because God was done with us and he was going to throw us on the trash heap of nice tries. Let's, you know, let's do it right this time. Jesus came because God loves us and was not willing to do life without us. Even though sin and shame drew a wedge between us. He didn't come to replace us. Rather, he came to, to redeem us and restore us back into relationship with the Father and, and restore us back into the original purpose for which we were created, namely to be his representative in spite of all of our imperfections, in spite of the, the, the residue of our rebellion. That's what Jesus came to do. Because God loved us that much that he wasn't willing to do life with us. He didn't want us to remain separated and covered in our sin. He wanted to deal with it once and for all. Now, I will tell you that throughout history, our tendency is to try to deal with it on our own, right? We try to scrub it away through doing lots of good things. Got to get to church on time. Got to, got to throw a certain amount. Got to make sure it's 10%. Got to make sure that gets into there because that, we got to make sure we do some good things. We got to make sure we go and buy some, some, uh, some stuff for the kids' 
backpacks that we can give to Tijuana because that can make up for that time I yelled at my kid, or that can make up for the time that I um, yelled at my spouse, or that can make up for the ways that I fudged uh, my answer to this one person, or that can make up for taking that second look or that third look. And no amount of our attempts to clean ourselves up are effective. In fact, I love what the book of Isaiah says. That all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. There's no way we can cleanse ourselves. And so what about you and me? What did God do there? Well, Paul spends two-thirds of this section talking about you and me and talking about the good news of what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to replace us. He came to redeem us. So let's begin reading in verse 19 because Jesus is our redeemer. He's the redeemer, not just of us, but of an entirely broken universe. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. He, he, was, he was of the same essence of God. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. That, rec- that term reconciliation doesn't just mean you deal with the, you know, the anger. It actually is a fixing of the core brokenness in the relationship so that you can go back to having a relationship. It's not just a, hey, let's, let's just you know, ignore, let's have a truce, but we're still going to be angry at one another. Reconciliation is dealing with the core issue that gets in the way. Namely, sin. So through him, he reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. And then here's the gospel message. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Paul, why are you dwelling on what we were? Remember that song, Amazing Grace? How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. We don't always realize how amazing grace is until we realize just how wretched we really are. Until we're honest with ourselves. Sometimes we need to recognize the residue of our rebelliousness. We need to recognize our wretchedness so that we can be grateful about the amazing grace that he lavishes upon us. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... It's all changed. Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. (laughs) Just for a moment, let me just admit that this is me. I got lots and lots of blemishes. I don't stand up here, by the way, as a pastor because I have it all together. And the moment that you start thinking that, please let me, um, let me remind you that I, I'm a Christ follower, not because I have it all together, but because I'm the first to admit that I don't have it together. I am a sinner. I am desperately in need of cleansing. And I've tried really hard to do it on my own throughout my life. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter how many good things I try to do, how many stairs in my, in my ladder that I try to build of doing good stuff. I build these broken stairways to heaven, which quite honestly are never sufficient. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It, it, it's useless. We can never cleanse ourselves. When you guys came in, 
Hopefully you received one of these strips of cloth. If you did not receive one, go ahead and raise your hand. One of, one of the ushers will make sure you do get one. I want to make sure you have one of these. This is your piece of, of, of our... This, I just want you this to represent who God made you to be. A beautiful white linen representation of him. Holy and pure. <laughs> My sons and I had a lot of fun making these. We got to get them messy. Because this is the reality, is that when we look at ourselves, we're not perfect and white. We are covered in the residue of our sin and our disobedience. And so as you, as you hold this in your hand for a moment, I want you to simply ask yourself this question. What do these stains represent in your life? You don't have to say it out loud, and I am not going to ask you to write it down. Nobody needs to know what goes on between your two ears right now or in your heart. I want you to have a conversation with God and prayerfully ask, what do these stains on your perfectly clean linen represent? Take a moment. Every single one of us was created to reflect the image of God in this world. That we, like a, a beautiful mosaic, would reflect God's heart. And that we would be able to join him in filling this world with, with his presence and with his character traits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Things like that. But the truth of the matter is that all of us... Um, are imperfect, we are stained. And we are not able by ourselves to clean ourselves up or make ourselves holy. And when we try, we just end up smearing the stain. And so then we try to hide. We put on, you know, we put a smile over broken hearts. We, we present on social media uh, a persona that is really not reality. We just pick and cultivate the moments of life that are acceptable and, and, and worth celebrating. And we are in a world full of people who do that. We have become really good at building. We're, we're like the, the incredible Wizard of Oz hiding behind our curtains, terrified that the, the people around us will realize that we are not so awe-inspiring and full of, of praise as we really are, that people would recognize just how imperfect we really are. We're terrified of it. And so we find ourselves on this hamster wheel of performance. And it's exhausting trying to make up for our imperfection. But this is the reality of all of us. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us is tarnished. And anybody that says we're not is fooling ourselves. We're not fooling anyone else, but we're fooling ourselves. But this, this reality is what makes the good news of the gospel so stinking good. Because what we were unable to do, namely to clean ourselves up and to make ourselves holy and righteous and spotless and pure, God did for us in sending Jesus. Jesus. 
Do you remember um, the conversation? I, you know, before I get there, go to Colossians chapter 2 for just a moment. Because a little bit later in this letter that Paul is writing, he explains the beauty of the cross. And in verse 13, he says this. When you were dead in your sins, remember sin separated us from God. And the moment that happened, that is, a, that is a spiritual separation from God. Death entered our reality. Remember, God said, if you eat of this fruit, if you sin, you will die. And, and the serpent goes, you won't die. And they ate the fruit. And guess what? They didn't drop dead in that moment. Did they not die? No. What happened is they were spiritually separated from God. So even though their physical bodies would ultimately die 10, 20, 100 years later, In that moment that they sinned, spiritually, they were separated from God. They died. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, that your flesh was not submitted to God, God made you alive with Christ. He breathed new life into you. He forgave us all of our sins. How many of them? About like five or six? So, so like the, the, the stuff I did yesterday, good, but the stuff today not covered, right? All, all of your sins. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Every time we sinned and we are, we are proclaimed guilty, guilty of lust, Guilty of greed, guilty of anger, guilty of murder. I didn't kill anybody. Yeah, but you harbored bitterness and anger towards your brother or your sister in your heart. That's equivalent of murder. Guilty of adultery. I didn't, I, 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 I never broke my marriage covenant. Anytime that you have looked at another person lustfully, you have broken your marriage bond. Letter to the Colossians. Darn right. <laughs> I love you, Tim. So... All of those things, all of those sins has begun to, to, to rack up a debt that you and I could not possibly ever pay off. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus, in one moment, hanging on that cross, paid the debt for all of them. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I love, I love that language, that word picture he uses. Because what he's saying is that when Jesus went to that hill of Golgotha right outside of Jerusalem, after having been beaten within an inch of his life, And the Roman centurion picked up the hammer and he took the nail and he began to drive the nail into Jesus's palms and into Jesus's feet. That in that moment, he was not just nailing Jesus to the cross. He was nailing every single one of yours and my sins to the cross as well. That every single stain, every single imperfection was driven into the cross as well. And so as Jesus hung there, it wasn't just our Lord and our Savior who was being crucified. It was our sinfulness. It was the stuff that gets in the way of us representing him. Do you remember the last words on Jesus' lips as he hung on the cross? It is finished, or an Aramaic, to tell us die, right? It, it is a, an Aramaic word that was used 
for a lot of different things. It means it is finished. So it's the kind of word that a, a jailer would use when somebody who had been accused of a lot of crimes, been found guilty, they would have all of their crimes written out. Remember, when Jesus was crucified, they, they wrote out his crimes above him. This is the king of the Jews. That was his crime, right? But for somebody who's in jail, they would have their crimes written out, and they would be serving out their jail sentence. And when their sentence was done, or perhaps they'd been, somebody had scraped together enough money to post bail, and they were released, the jailer would go to that, that, that list of crimes, and he would write to Telestai across it. It is finished. Because this person's payment is finished. No longer anything holding them in jail. It's the same word that would be used for when somebody purchased something and had to take out a large loan in order to pay it. And they were slowly trying to pay it back. And when they finally made that last payment, the person that held that bill of sale would write to Telestai, to Telestai across the bill. It is finished. Paid in full. Done. And those are the words on Jesus' lips as he hangs on the cross. To Telestai. It is finished. What's finished? Uh, the sacrificial system where they would have to use the blood of bulls and goats to try to momentarily cover their sinfulness so they could come into God's presence. It is finished. The, the power of sin and death over God's image bearers that kept them in bondage, separated from him. It is finished. Paid in full. The shame and the need for us to try to somehow make up for our imperfections. It is finished. And so this morning, what we get to do is we get to take our imperfections. We get to put it against the cross and we get to say, it is finished. That's no longer me. The old self is gone. The new self has come. And yeah, I'm not perfect. I have Jesus in my heart. I have invited the Holy Spirit. I am still a work in progress. One of my very favorite verses in all of Scripture is found in Hebrews chapter 10, where Paul says, By one sacrifice, God has made perfect forever those who are still in the process of being made holy. By one sacrifice, Jesus justified, paid the penalty of our sins. We are no longer held we no longer have the, the, the weight of the debt of our sins hanging over us. But you and I are still in process of becoming more and more Christ-like. And that is something that will continue throughout the rest of our lives. And so this morning, what we are going to do is we are going to respond in a tangible way. Grab these again. This is your symbolic representation of the sin that you carry around with you, the things that get in the way of you both having a relationship with God and the things that get in the way of you reflecting his heart accurately in this world. And there are some of you who uh, may just kind of go, no, that's not me. I'm, I'm a good person. I do a lot of good things. May I just say as somebody who's finally come to terms with the fact that I'm a sinful, broken human being, that none of us, none of us are lily white. And that's okay. You don't have to have it all together to be here. We're here because we're the first to acknowledge that we need a Savior because we can't clean ourselves up. 
You're in good company. There may be some of you in here who have been working your took us off, trying to make up for this, trying to cleanse yourself of this, trying to do lots and lots of good things to make up for the guilt that you feel for being selfish, for being greedy, for being lustful, for being rude, for being prideful, for being you fill in the blank. You know what those spots represent in your life. And for you this morning, I simply want to say you don't have to carry this any longer and you don't have to try to make up for this anymore. That's not the message of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that what we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. The one who holds the world together, the one that spoke it into existence and through his power he created the earth, the one who has perfectly represented God. The rightful owner and ruler of everything, including us, sacrificed himself for us so that you and I would not be replaced, but rather we would be redeemed and restored back into relationship with God so that we could do what he created us to do. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to embrace this truth about yourself, that this no longer represents you. That this is no longer chains that you need to carry or a backpack of rocks of shame that you need to carry around with you. Or, or something that compels you to cover up through good works or to hide and, and numb out through drugs and alcohol and, and, and busyness. And climbing the corporate ladder so that you feel okay about yourself. You don't have to carry this any longer because it's finished. A lot of times in the church, what we say is, hey, you just need to pray a prayer, right? You need to pray a prayer of Jesus. I need you to come into my life. I need you to cleanse me. Thank you for dying for me. It's really just kind of an acknowledgement of accepting his sacrifice. The problem with a prayer is that nowhere in scripture does Jesus ever say, hey, pray this prayer. His invitation was always follow me. And sometimes a prayer is just something we kind of, it's a hoop we jump through, but it doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. So this morning I want to kind of approach this a little bit differently. I want to invite you, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, to declare your dependence upon Jesus Christ and to declare that this doesn't define you. And we're going to do that by, by coming forward. And there's some crosses up here and there's some nails and hammers. There's also some in the back for those of you who are upstairs. Um, we are going to come and we are going to nail our imperfections and our sins and the stuff that gets in the way to these crosses. And when you do it, I, I invite you to just lay it across the cross, grab a nail. Please don't hurt yourself. Put the nail on there and hit it three times. It is finished. You don't have to hammer it all the way into the bottom, Darlene. I know you do. <laughs> Me too. It's already finished. So this is a tangible declaration that you identify with, with Jesus' sacrifice and that your identity is not because of what you have done, but what, because of what he has done. That Jesus didn't come to replace you. He came to redeem you and restore you back into relationship with God so that you could and can reflect his heart. And so I invite you as the worship team comes forward, I invite you as we respond right now, let this be an act of worship. May this be a declaration of your dependence on Jesus. As you feel led, I invite you to come forward and, 
and give him your burdens. Nail him to the cross because it's finished. Let's worship together.